Alright. We're taking all the best old school wisdom and blending it with the top new school methods to bring you the optimal coaching strategies. This is the 8020 Baseball Podcast with Coach Bo. Welcome 8020 Baseball community, 8020 Baseball coaches. I am pumped up to be here. Episode 200. I saw a stat recently that showed very few podcasts, a very small percentage of podcasts make it to that 100 or 200 episodes. Sure, we we know of the big ones that have thousands of episodes, but there are so many that just do a few or 25 or 50 and that's it. So I feel pretty good about coming out with episode 200. I'm here every week trying my best to bring you relevant, useful, high priority information that can help you go out there as coaches and have a much easier job, a much faster time of implementing strategies that work, not just with the skill development and how well the team plays on the scoreboard, but with the team culture, with the environment, making it fun, where players want to come back and play for you, not just because they're getting better as players, which is definitely a part of it. And not just because the team is getting better throughout the season or from one season to the next, but also because they're enjoying themselves consistently. So I am super pumped to bring episode 200 of the 8020 Baseball podcast, the 8020 Baseball Masterclass, where we're focusing on youth baseball and mastering those key concepts, those key things that we need as youth coaches to go out there and be successful because we're all busy, busy with day jobs, busy with families, busy taking care of our health, busy getting sleep. We are busy and we need a direct, concise path. And that's what this podcast is all about, as well as the 8020baseball.com. This episode is loaded. We got 10 things we're going to cover. Each of these concepts we're going to cover a little faster than our typical segments, but we have 10 things to cover because it's episode 200 and I am pumped. So let's start off here with a tip for getting parents to stay humble and helpful. One of the hardest things for youth coaches, one of the toughest parts of youth coaching, it's not the players, it's not the team. That should be the challenging part, trying to become a better coach between the chalk lines or in the dugout. But one of the most challenging areas, as most of you have heard or have experienced, is trying to get all the parents on board in a cohesive unit of parents. There are different ways to go about this. We've shared out a few strategies and tips for keeping parents more content. I think the first thing we need to do is be careful with who we build the team with, what players we build the team with. We'll hit on this in just a little bit as one of our other parts to this episode. An interesting quote, or I should say comment made by a coach that I really respect about the player-parent combination. One of the best ways to get parents to stay humble and content Also, to reduce how much criticism or critique they may be sharing with you or other parents or online about your coaching job or your team or the team in and of itself, while also getting them to be more helpful is to make a very solid effort from the get-go to get parents involved in coaching. All of the parents, all of the parents involved with helping as coaches. Doesn't mean they need to know the A through Zs of coaching baseball, but get them out there, get them involved, be creative with it. You could even throw out a survey to them, an email with suggestions or options that they can choose from, things that they could help out with. By getting parents 
involved in coaching, the more parents you can get involved as assistant coaches or as helpers or as practice facilitators or as pregame facilitators, much more likely that that will humble them knowing how hard it is to coach. It should humble them more so once they're out there having to do it, right? This is that concept of very humbling once you get in the trenches and you actually have to do it for yourself. It's much easier to sit there and watch a NFL quarterback make a bad throw and say, man, what was he thinking? That's terrible. Oh man, that guy should be cut. It's much easier to say that from the couch, having never played football, than in the pocket where you have 1,200 pounds of muscle coming after you with four, six, four, seven, sometimes four, four speed, and they're not looking to play patty cake. It's a lot different, right? So by getting as many parents involved in the coaching, not just with input, but also just physically out there to see that it is challenging because when they're trying to run a part of a drill, if you have parents that are helping out with a station at practice or a part of practice, they can see firsthand and they're going to experience the challenges and some of the challenges that come along with coaching. Now here at 8020 Baseball, we're trying our best to eliminate as many of those challenges, or I should say reduce and, and find solutions quickly to those challenges that come up. That's why we're here every week. But I think it's a good strategy from Jump Street to get parents involved and get them out there. And it kind of goes back to like, oh, you think you can do better? Well, hey, come out and give it a shot. Now, we don't want to say that, of course. That's not a mature way to attack this problem or to go after this and solve this problem. But we want to kind of flank parents a little, come around the side and say, hey, I want you all to be involved and sell them on why it's important to be involved. Now, on the back end, as a result, this will hopefully keep them a little more humble. Also, feel like they had a part of it so that they're less likely to critique the coaching staff knowing that they were a part of it. Do they need to be out there for every practice? No, but you could. You could have them sign up for different practices. Have them sign up to come out and help. Say, hey, I really want all of you to come out and help out for at least two of the practices. It can be moms, dads. Have them out there at a minimum just helping keep the players on task or reiterating a coaching staff pointer for that drill, for that station. There's a lot of ways you can do this, but I think it's key to get them out there, at least for a couple practices throughout the season. And then it's less you versus them, perceived as less coaches and parents are separate, but rather one cohesive unit altogether. There is no small group of coaches. There's no group of three. There's everybody. We're all coaches. We're all parents. We're all coaches on this team. So just a little thing, but I think could be a big thing for getting parents to stay a little more humble, also a little less likely to you know, undermine the coaching staff when they feel like they're a part of it. Another way is to get feedback, consistent feedback, so they feel heard. If they feel heard, by you and the coaches and say the main coaches, maybe just you as the head coach or the manager. So provide an avenue for them to offer feedback after every game or at the end of every week. I like the electronic email, a form. I would make it a somewhat official, have some kind of format to it where you email them each week. You just send out an email with certain questions. Hey, what kind of feedback do you have? What could we have done better, et cetera. All right. I spoke to a parent who has a kid that plays for the driveline youth baseball team. So driveline, some of you know, some of you probably don't. They're a very well-known baseball training facility and they've expanded and, and done some other things. They're very popular in the baseball world. Kyle Bodie, their founder, started it years ago. I actually flew over and got a tour of the facility. I've been following since day one when they started. I'm a fan of them in a lot of ways. I, I like what they do, a lot of things that they do. Some of the old school baseball coaches that I know, a little hesitant on them, not as welcoming to their training method and things like that, but I really like where they're coming at with a lot of things, just like any 
coach that I study or program or organization, there's always something that I, I don't quite see eye to eye with. But you know what? If you're going out and you're being progressive and you're trying to move the needle forward and you're trying to get better and you're doing things different, you think there's a better way to do it, you're inevitably going to mess up. And that goes with that territory. So I cut people in, in groups and programs and organizations and businesses like Driveline a lot of slack because they're trying to be at the forefront. They're trying to improve things that really haven't seen and gotten a lot of love in the coaching world before or their methods are different. And so, yeah, they're going to be wrong on a few things, but I think they've been right on a lot of things. And I talked to a parent whose kid plays for Driveline and mentioned something that I think we can take out of it is they, they try to quantify as much as they can. So they put the, the blast sensors, the bat sensors on for the hitters so they can get feedback and numbers. There's something to be said for this, getting some kind of number feedback, quantitative feedback in the moment, and then the player can adjust from there. This goes back to giving the player autonomy versus having to coach up the player after every swing or after every pitch or after every ground ball. The feedback, it doesn't have to come from the coaches. It can also come from technology. I know this isn't something all teams and all players can use or maybe afford. I understand, but it is something that could be useful. I think they're focused on using technology and kind of gamifying things, having fun out there. I think that's a great path to go down when you can. It could even come down to just the stopwatch at practice, using the stopwatch at practice to gamify things, having competitions. But it could be something as simple as getting a radar gun out there and just radaring how fast kids are hitting line drives. Maybe you put the caveat in batting practice that if you hit a pop-up or a high fly ball, that's not going to count. If you hit a ground ball straight into the ground, we're going to discard that score. Quantifying things, giving players data that they can use don't bury them in data, but just a few things here and there. thought that was an interesting thing that they're doing. A lot of teams are doing that on the professional levels and the college levels, of course. They've taken it to a whole nother level. And high schools, too. Some high schools are already doing this. But youth baseball, are there ways that we can use data, use technology? I love a stopwatch. Old school, but hey, at the end of the day, it tells us what we need to know in a lot of cases. How fast did they go? How quick was it? I think getting some kind of velocity off the bat. That's always cool. Kids like that. How fast did I hit it? Again, that would be with a less than two strike approach. I wouldn't practice that with the two strike approach so much, but with less than two strikes, you're hit, trying to hit the ball hard. You're trying to get a pitch that you can drive, trying to hit doubles, trying to hit balls in the gap hard. All right. Three steps to practicing a skill with a player in an easier way if they can't do it the harder, more difficult way. So just three simple steps to practicing a skill. You either slow down the ball or the drill. You can get closer. You can close up the proximity. Or a third step could be to use a larger or slower ball. These are things that I recommend possibly using or using from time to time if the majority of the team is struggling with something. I think all drills should start a little slower and then progressively get tougher and become very challenging. But for those very young kids, those young kids, those six-year-olds, those seven-year-olds, this is not a bad way to do it. I think once you get to a certain age, 11s and 12s, 13s and 14s, you don't really need to do this because by then your drill should be designed where they're having success. At least the majority of the players are having some success. They're not all failing on it. But for those six U or seven U, something you could do. Here's a perfect example in volleyball. I always thought that youth volleyball or even like volleyball in PE classes should not have started or been done with a volleyball, a regular volleyball and the nets up at whatever they're at, like eight feet. Doesn't make any sense to me. That's what the pros, that's what the collegiate athletes and volleyball players do, the high school varsity players do. You're going to get some middle school PE students to do that. You expect them to pass the ball three times, a bump, a set, and a spike. Good luck even trying to get that first bump much less a dig or anything like that, much less getting it to go straight consistently. Now, can they learn this? Should they learn that? Should they learn that skill if they want to play? Of course. 
but it should be phased in. So with volleyball, I always thought it should be done with beach balls. When you have kids in elementary school, it should be done with beach balls. Maybe they start with bigger beach balls, maybe smaller beach balls. I always thought that was a great way to start with younger players to get better at volleyball so they can learn how the game is played without basically having the game stop after every single mistake, which is pretty much after every single hit. You know, the serve, boom, ball gets hit off to the side. So this is a way to practice skill development with players in an easier way if they can't do it the harder, more difficult way. Insofar as it's the majority of the players, insofar as it's, for the most part, youth players, you can slow down the ball or the drill. You could get closer or further away, depending on how the difficulty level adjusts or is adjusted by distance. Lastly, you can get a larger ball or a slower ball. You can also get a safer ball, right? So there's two things at play on top of the skill development, just in terms of getting better with their skills, the mental side of it. Some players are just afraid of the ball when they're younger. Very common, afraid of the ball. Get a softer ball. Give them a little more mental competence so at least they can get in there, get their swings in. They can get their ground balls fielded. And over time, when they get more confident hitting the ball, when they get more competent fielding ground balls, they're going to be less likely to bail out when the traditional hard baseball comes their way. I always thought youth baseball should be using a softer baseball because that ball is stronger than teeth. It's usually stronger than some facial bones. And when a baseball can win the battle with a tooth more often than not, I always thought, hmm. And I'm not against... Kids getting bruises and bumped and falling. In fact, I think it's fine. I had my daughter out rollerblading. She's little. She's learning to rollerblade. She got a helmet on. She's got elbow pads and knee pads, but I don't stand next to her. She falls, she falls. But when she falls, I want her to keep going. I don't want the fall to end her time out there. I don't stand behind her and catch her. If she falls, she goes down as hard as she goes down. But she's got a helmet on and some pads. You know, eventually you got to take that stuff off. I'd rather the level of toughness with my players increase a little slower, but have them not quit. Now, some players will never quit. They'll just keep going. But some players will. You'd rather get to a level of success longevity where they don't quit because they get hit by a ball or have a bad experience. And if you can delay that, from happening or reduce the chances, then they're going to have more success. They're going to get better. They're going to get better reaction time. They're going to be able to field it more cleanly. So three steps to practicing a skill. You say to yourself, man, the team's not getting this. Most of the team's not getting this. It shouldn't happen very often if you design your drills correctly, your training environment correctly. But you might have the majority of your players struggling with something. And when I say something, something that's the typical game speed for that level. And that's when you back up and say, hey, we got to slow this ball down a little. We got to slow the drill down. Second thing you can do is get closer or further away so there can be more success so you can get more reps. And lastly, change the implement, a larger ball, a slower ball. Those are three things you can do. And again, this is for those lower levels. Like I said, might happen once a month, might happen that first practice, but you have something to go to without getting frustrated or without delaying practice too much. You can be, all right, we're going to slow this down. We're going to get a slower ball. We're going to get a safer ball. We're going to see if we can get a little closer, a little further apart and go from there. All right. I have shared out on this podcast, the strong recommendation to give genuine praise to your players, make a lot of quality deposits, build that rapport. How about this one? Have your players give genuine praise to a teammate, to their teammates, two to three times during a practice. So we've talked about the coaches giving praise to the players, genuine praise, specific praise. I highly recommend coaching up your players to give genuine specific praise to their teammates during practice. I would have a requirement that they are to give at least, I would start with at least two compliments or at least twice give praise Specific praise, genuine praise, not sarcastic, but genuine, authentic praise to a teammate 
during, say, a two-hour practice period. I really like this strategy. Now the praise is not just coming from the adults, but coming from their peers. Talk about a confidence booster. Talk about boosting team morale. You have to be very clear with this. It needs to be genuine. It can't be at all sarcastic. It has to be genuine, caring praise. Tell them it's got to come from the heart. It's got to come from the belief that they really just saw something great happen, that they really were impressed, that that was something that the other teammate, their peer did awesome or really good. I don't think we need to get into the reasons this is so beneficial because there are many reasons here that this will help individual players and the team culture. You could have somebody track it. You could have an assistant coach track it. Or to make it easier, you could say at the end of practice, who'd you give praise to? Who did you give your two sets of praise to? Now, if they give more than that, great. You must be clear with all things up front when you coach. There's always something that needs to be specified early, almost on anything that you want players to do. And in this case, be very clear and specific that the praise needs to be genuine. It needs to be specific. It needs to come from the heart. It cannot just be a token compliment. It definitely should not be sarcastic. And then give them the why. Say, hey, when we get praised and we have compliments, does that boost all of you up? Doesn't it make you play a little harder? Make you play with more confidence, knowing that your teammate has your back, but not just thinking that your teammate has your back, but hearing them have your back. It also does something I think very interesting. It inherently makes it less about me or about the player and themselves and more about their team. So it's not just me, 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 but us and them and my teammates. So instead of always looking inward at what they need to get better at, what they're doing well at, what they need to fix, they're looking out. They're looking outward and giving praise. They realize it's not just about them. It's a selfless thing to do. And I highly recommend setting the expectation, setting forth the expectation that players give genuine praise to one of their teammates each practice multiple times. I wouldn't go more than three times in a two-hour practice. I'm not saying they won't do that, but I would set the expectation at one, two, or three, you could start with one. I think with a two-hour practice or two-hour training time, you could start with two and then build up to three compliments, three pieces of praise that each one of them gives. As a coach or coaches, you could have certain coaches paying attention to that or listening for praise. So peer-to-peer praise, not just coaching praise. Every player on the team gets praised a couple times by each coach every practice, and they get a couple compliments or couple messages of praise from their teammates, from their peers. Now they're getting four or five, six, maybe seven compliments or pieces of praise. And it really forces the team to focus on the good. I think it's going to get players playing looser, trying to play well, trying to do something awesome, trying to make a great play, trying to beat out that ground ball. Because we see it as something that in a way kind of gets rewarded by praise from the peers, by our teammates and the coaches. It's rewarded by being addressed. Now, earlier we talked about getting parents involved. We talked about getting parents more involved with practices so that can help them be a little more humble when they want to share out all their advice because they start to see firsthand that it's not easy. In fact, I got this idea because I was thinking about who are the best parents that I've ever worked with, I've ever been around when it comes to youth sports. Who are the best in terms of they don't always feel like they need to speak up and they're the least likely to question the coaches. They respect the coaches the most. They sympathize with the coaching staff the most. What was the commonality? What was the greatest commonality of those parents? And more than anything, the best parents I've ever 
worked with, they were former coaches or they had coached a sport before. Because when you start coaching, you get humbled really quick and then you take that into being a parent because you know how challenging being a coach can be. If you don't realize how hard it is, we just think it's easy. Well, you're a lot more apt to want to give advice. Hey, it's not that hard. It is hard. It is challenging. So by getting parents involved in the coaching staff, all of them, I think that's going to build more camaraderie. You're going to be around each other more, more cohesiveness there, but also a little slice of humble pie sometimes when those drills don't go as well as you thought, or a little harder than it looks from the bleachers. Now, here's something I did hear about parents. This is a big time college coach. He says that he recruits parents, not just the players. And he's a football coach. And he said he'll punt on a player if the parents are not of the team first mindset. And he said, when the recruits come in, he's recruiting the parent too. And I think the same thing goes for youth sports. And I've explained the trade-offs. Yeah, you could argue on one side. You could say, Coach Bo, that's not fair. That's not fair to the kid. I know it's not fair to the kids. It's not fair to all the other kids that are going to get subjected to a couple bad parents that ruin the entire team culture. I do not believe in sacrificing an enjoyable environment, their team culture, because of a couple parents. And we have to send that message. And unfortunately, there's going to be some bumps and there's going to be a learning curve and it's not always going to be pretty, but we have to send that message to parents that they will not be welcome on teams if they are not of the team first mindset. I get the counter argument, but the counter argument is, what about the kids? And I say, yeah, what about the kids? So we're going to not take these two kids because they got parents that are bad apples. But you know what? That's going to save the other 11 kids from having a worse experience this year. It's essentially taking the argument and using it against that argument. And what happens in the long run, either we continue to let these parents and players, these families come join the teams, sometimes rolling out the red carpet for them, and then they continue to create a miserable environment for everybody else. They make it a bad year. They, they ruin the team culture from the bleachers, behind the scenes, by using, sending direct messages to other parents, or eventually they're going to get the message, not all of them, but enough of them, that, hey, that's not welcome. This is the expectation. We want you to rise up to the level of the expectation. If you want to play in this league, if you want to play in this area, if you want to play on this team, you're going to be of the team first mindset. You're not going to second guess. You're going to sit there in the bleachers and talk bad about the coaches or other players. It's going to be a team first, positive environment. And I thought, Hey, here's a great coach, a very high character coach who says he literally will punt on a player if the parents are not of the team first mindset. If we continue to let this go, it's going to continue to get worse. But if we all put our foot down, eventually those parents, not all of them, of course, but a lot of them, if not most of them, they'll start to shape up. But if we continue to reward that behavior, that poor parent behavior, that poor parental behavior, if we continue to reward it with roster spots, sometimes really great spots in the lineup, primetime positions, the red carpet, what do we expect is going to continue? It can't go no other way. Now, moving forward, we've talked about not commenting on every physical error a player makes. I recommend, and I've said this before, letting them make two or three physical mistakes before feeling the need as coaches to interject some teaching pointer, some coaching pointer. But be upfront with this before the season. This is the part I haven't really discussed much, if at all. Beginning of the season, be very clear. And just say, hey, I'm not the type of coach that's going to tell you how to fix every error that you make. I'm not going to sit there and tell you what went wrong and why you missed the ball or why you missed the pitch after every single time or after every time. So be upfront with this before the season. I highly recommend as coaches, we don't interject a coaching pointer and feel like we need to coach up our players every time they make a physical mistake. We've discussed that here at length on this podcast, but something I left out that is very important to do is before the season begins at the beginning of the season, say, hey, 
I might be a lot different than some of the other coaches you've had in the past. Tell your players, tell your parents multiple times and be very clear about it that the coaches, the coaching staff won't be telling them how to fix every single mistake or telling them what went wrong and why they messed up after every physical error. Partly because we coaches may not have a great response ready to share out. We might not have a great response or the correct response or the correct pointer to share. Be upfront, say part of this is because we as coaches, we may not have the answer right then. We might not know exactly what went wrong and how to fix it at that moment. But more so, we are going to let you play through this and figure some of this out because we trust you players to learn from the game as well. And the game is one of the best, if not the best teacher, not the coaches. We will definitely help coach you up as best we can, but the game will teach you. It will give you feedback and we trust you players. We trust your intelligence to learn from the game as well. We have the expectation that you're going to be very aware and you're going to be willing to try adjustments. We want you players to be open-minded, to be aware, to be present and make the adjustments on your own or try different things. Be open-minded and willing to make little adjustments, even if they're slight. And we also don't want to just make a change and overcorrect after one or two physical mistakes. We want to see a pattern before we start to fix things, right? And I think that goes with anything in life. We shouldn't just correct something right away. Now, if your kid is going out in the street on their bike and not looking and a car almost smokes them, yeah, then you address that immediately and you hammer that point until the cows come home. You that. But when it comes to missing a ground ball or missing a pitch, we shouldn't overcorrect by giving too many corrections. But be upfront with your players and their parents that this is the strategy the coaching staff will have and then explain why. All right. Episode 200. I, I'm pumped up. Coaching quote of the week. Quote, it's not what you say, it's what they hear by John Townsend, a former professional baseball player. It's not what you say, it's what they hear. Now, as a coach, as coaches, this is how we use this information. This is how we apply it. This is how we implement it, right? This podcast is all about implementation, action, and getting results. Not just talking about theory and talking about the quote. We really want to understand how this quote applies and how we can use it as coaches. So quote, not what you say, it's what they hear, end quote. So as coaches, what we need to do here is consistently ask ourselves when we share a message or better yet, before we share a message, before we try to coach up our players, before we do a pregame talk or a post-practice discussion or a post-game discussion or a pre-practice discussion, we need to always be asking ourselves, what are they hearing? What are they likely to hear? What are the majority of my players' parents going to hear when I say this? It may be good to run it by another coach, the assistant coaches, but I think intuitively, if we just ask ourselves and we can put ourselves in those nine U cleats, those 12 year old cleats, we can put ourselves in their cleats and genuinely say, what are they hearing? I think that's such a great start to making sure that what we say is what they hear or what we want them to hear comes out in a way that they hear what we're saying the way it's intended. So I really like that quote and it just keeps us thinking that just because we're saying it a certain way doesn't mean they're hearing it that way. But what does that mean when it comes to implementation? I think it's just a good thing to do whenever we're sharing messages with kids, not what we say, but what they hear that's important. And we must always be asking ourselves, what are they hearing? How might they have mistakenly interpreted that? How might they have misunderstood that? Now, if you're clear and concise with your message, that's the best thing to do, I think, overall. Just be very clear and concise, not get long-winded, not use big words, use some metaphors, use some analogies, try to relate it to things that they already know at their level, their age. Say things a couple different ways. That's always a good thing. If you use a word that they might not know, 
give the definition every time. Don't be condescending, but just clearly and concisely give an explanation, a definition, and then move forward. I think talking less, being clear, having a nice cadence. I really like saying the same thing multiple different ways when you can, if not just another way, a second way, sometimes a third way. So for example, you could say, we are going to be a team that hustles on the field. We are going to hustle. We're going to be a high hustle team. For example, I expect all of you to run all the way through first base or to run as hard as you can while you're on the base paths. In other words, I don't want to see anybody slowing down just because they think they're going to be out or slowing down because they think they're going to score easily. We are going to give it 100%. We're going to go our fastest at our full speed. So notice I said it four different ways and gave three or four different examples there. And I'll say that wasn't even the best message. I was kind of going off the cuff right there as an example for all of you listeners of how to use this. I would bullet point some of this out. You don't need to script out messages, but having a little bulleted list is a good thing. It's not about being perfect. It's about being better. And those are ways that we can do better with getting our players to hear what we want them to hear. Now, I saw a tweet that said the amount of arm surgeries you now see from baseball players, 13U to 18U is mind boggling. Something needs to change. That's from Coach Switala. Coach Switala. I saw this on Twitter. I think a big thing with the arm surgeries is pitch totals. I think a lot of it's just getting the lower half involved more, getting the legs involved more, doing more fitness with the legs. I'm not saying go and hit the gold's gym and start having kids squat 400 pounds or 300 pounds. What I'm saying is do lunges, do reverse lunges. Do knee lifts, do more side lunges, do some yoga out there on the field, do some hip mobility, balancing stuff. I think one of the best things we can do is to get the lower half stronger, a little more mobile. See, I think part of it is that the 12 year olds now on average are a lot less mobile than they were 50 years ago and our society and kind of our way of living, our lifestyles have brought that up about. And it is what it is. What I'm saying is kids aren't climbing as many trees. They're not climbing as many fences. They're not out riding their bikes all day. They're not out playing a ton of sandlot games. They're not out playing tag all the time. Now some are, but overall they're not as mobile, a lot more inactivity, especially when you get to that middle school and definitely that high school level. So I think we just need to incorporate things into practice, into our routines as coaches with our players to get their legs a little more mobile and strong. And it doesn't have to be going to the gym. It could simply just nice concentrated reps on lunges, different types of lunges, hip mobility, single leg stuff, balance, and also with our pitchers, getting our legs more involved. I talked about this in a previous episode, getting the legs lower half more involved, let the hips, the front hip and glutes lead the way, bring the arm along for the ride. Don't have the arm out, out too far in front of the upper half, the shoulders out in the chest, out in front too much. Let the legs do the, the grunt work and let the arm kind of come along for the ride and be the, the accuracy part of it being the, the part that's getting it to the target. Let's get the legs to generate a lot of that power. So I don't want to dive too much into this, but I did see this quote. It made me think like, yeah, I just remember jumping fences and climbing trees all the time out in this neighborhood. We do hide and seek out in the neighborhood and you know, he'd be crawling under stuff. He'd be crawling under bushes. I can't tell you how many times we'd hop fences, right? When you go to hop a fence, you better have those hips working or man, you'd have to buy a new set of Levi's about every third jump. So again, I try to take something that I saw out there and then try to tie it in with something we can do better as coaches. If you're a parent, you can afford it. Get your kid into at least a once a week conditioning program specific for, in my opinion, lower half legs that builds athleticism, hip mobility. Somebody who specializes in this, we had coach Tommy Hansen on, he'd be a good resource. He's out there in the Midwest. Now coach Dion Sanders, 
This was on a pregame show this last weekend. They asked Deion Sanders, say, Deion, you played in the NFL. You returned punts. You were a center fielder, an outfielder, and you were a hitter. What was the hardest thing to do in all of sports? What's the hardest thing that you ever had to do? Was it covering Jerry Rice? Was it covering these great receivers? He said, no, hitting a baseball is the hardest thing to do. Now, again, this is very anecdotal. It was very athletic. I think he found athletics a little easier than most. He was gifted physically, but he said hitting a baseball was the hardest thing to do. And it always makes me think then why do we complicate the hitting approach? Why do we complicate the hitting approach? So it was interesting because it was a pregame interview, pregame show for a college football game. As most of you know, Coach Coach Prime is now the football coach at Colorado. But he said the hardest thing that he ever found in sports was hitting a baseball. The hardest thing he ever had to do in sports was to hit a baseball. I, I just saw the other day, hitters got to do this. And it was like a seven point checklist as the pitch was coming. On this podcast, we talked about some checklists, but if you noticed, three of those things happen before the pitcher even starts his delivery. So they can just kind of be done over the course of four or five seconds, not within hundreds of a second when that pitch is coming out of the pitcher's hand before it crosses the plate. Hitting approach, go over to 80-20 baseball. I think that's probably the best piece of advice this podcast has ever had in terms of the benefit the scale of impact it can have on youth hitters and hitters at every level. I think we've ironed out the hitting approach, the hitting plan, and it's really based on pitch selection. When it comes to the best thing we can do for our players across the board, when it comes to skill development, is that pitch selection, hitting approach, pitch selection. There's an article I bulleted out on the article on 8020baseball.com. I know it's different. I've never seen that approach outlined like that, but it's simple and it's achievable and kids can have success with it. And you don't even even know what a great swing looks like to have a lot more success, to have your hitters have a lot more success when they're in the batter's box. And I put years and years and years of thought of this and just I've heard hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not a thousand different hitting approaches or hitting plans shared out. All the great other youth coaches and all throughout the middle. And I said, there's got to be a plan that's optimal when it comes to pitch selection. So we have the plan A, the plan two, and then the plan take. But the plan take is something that you don't use very frequently, but it is there. So if one of the greatest athletes of our generation says the hardest thing he ever had to do in sports was hitting a baseball, we got to continue to simplify hitting a baseball. And that's what we did on the 80-20 baseball hitting plan, hitting approach, pitch selection plan. Now, my mom sent me this story, and some of you may have heard this, but most of you probably haven't. My mom sent, sent me this. You know, you're in the, you know you're a baseball person when your mom sends you these things. But my mom's in her 70s now, and she sent me this the other day. And it, 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 a little quick story here. It's kind of a fictional story, but it's, it's funny, and it has to do with youth baseball. So she sends it, says, At one point during a game, the coach called one of his nine-year-old baseball players aside and asked, Do you understand what cooperation is? what a team is. Well, yes, coach, replied the little boy. Do you understand that what matters is whether we win or lose together as a team? The little boy nodded in the affirmative. So, the coach continued, I'm sure you know when an out is called, you shouldn't argue. Curse at the umpire. Call him a bad name. Do you understand all that? Again, the little boy nodded in the affirmative. The coach continued, and when I take you out of the game so that another boy gets a chance to play, it's not a bad decision or a dumb decision, or the coach isn't a dummy, right? The little boy said, of course not, coach. Good, said the coach. Now go over there and explain all that to your grandmother. I thought that was good. Some of you probably heard that 
before, but I thought that was just a cute story. I figured the majority of you hadn't. So I wanted to share the whole time. You're like, this kid's getting a lecture because he's not behaving correctly. And it's the plot twist at the end. I love it. Grandma's over there in the bleachers acting a fool, but, uh, you know, it kind of goes along with what we're talking about today and what I already had scripted out and what I had already kind of planned out to talk about earlier with working with parents, get them a little more involved on the coaching side of things. So you can get them to be a little less critical of the coaches. And I thought that message that my mom sent me just a few days back fit in very nicely. All right. Next episode, we got some good stuff next episode. I'm going to share out something very common and encouraged that we should actually completely avoid with 99% of our hitters. And also I'm going to share out a mistake many coaches make. I made this myself when I first started when communicating or coaching up our players. And we'll discuss what we should do instead. So we avoid that mistake that I've seen tons of coaches make, including myself. So next week I'll share out something that is very common and even encouraged that we should absolutely avoid at all costs with almost all of our hitters, not all of them, but almost all of them. And I'm also going to share out a mistake that many coaches have made, myself included, when communicating and coaching up our players. And I'll discuss what to do instead. So make sure you're here for next week's episode. And until then, it was great to be here with all of you. I love getting feedback, the emails, the positive reviews. Thank you so much for being a part of the 8020 baseball community. You should thank yourself for trying to be a better coach. I'm trying my best to give back to the baseball community. I feel like this is a calling for me just because of my whole life, my upbringing, all the great coaches I was exposed to, but also with the mindset of where coaching could be improved and then couple that with youth baseball getting served specifically knowing that, hey, we're busy people. We're busy as youth coaches. We don't have the time a high school and pro and college coaches have. It's a whole different arena in terms of how much time we're allotted. So thank you for being a coach. I'm glad to be here with you so all of us can become better when we step out there on the field, be more successful in all the different areas. And until next week, until episode 201, take care of yourself, your health. Let's take care of our health so we can be great for our families, there for our close friends, and we can be the best coach when we step out on the field. And when we take this information out there to use it, we have the strength and energy to be a positive influence on our teams, our players, and the youth baseball community. Head over to 8020baseball.com. Check out all the stuff over there if you haven't already. And until next week, adios. This has been the 8020 Baseball Masterclass. Take it to the field.